history lovers and welcome to the first History Ireland podcast. This is uh, editor Tommy Graham here. And um, for first podcast, we're going to try and make sense of the recent general election. Everybody has been trying to. Uh, I have here uh, in the studio uh, Brian Hanley, author of The Impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland, 1968 to 1979. So, Brian, everyone is saying how seismic this recent election has been. I mean... Is it? Uh, has it been seismic? It has, yeah. I mean, I think the old party system has been fundamentally broken by this. Um, if you even go back three decades, you know, the percentage of vote being held by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael was over 80%. And I don't think that's ever going to happen again. There are three parties in contention now. And most dramatically, the single largest percentage went to Sinn Féin. So I don't think it's ever going to reset itself. It is... This election certainly has been the, it's been coming for a while, I think, but this has, you know, broken the old system. We've had surges before, though. I mean, we, we had the spring tide in 92 and we had the Gilmore Gale in, uh, back in, in 2011, you know. So do you think this is different in, in that it, you think it's, it's here to stay? Yeah, I think this is, you know, in, in global terms, we're witnessing one of, the, one of the other outcomes of the Great Recession, which has deeply impacted on politics everywhere. And here... You know, Fianna Fáil dominated Irish politics since the 1930s and their gradual weakening was, you know, in effect, you know, brought to its conclusion by the recession. And they're never coming back now as the dominant party. Fine Gael, on the other hand, have always had a certain niche um, and, and due to the weakness of Fianna Fáil in the last number of years, were able to, you know, temporarily take their place. But I think unlike the earlier surges, the Sinn Féin vote reflects this big desire for change on the one hand, but also a nation, already a nationwide structure to accommodate that um, and a real sense that this is, you know, whatever way it works out, that there are going to be three or four parties in contention, perhaps even more from now on. How, how radical is the surge though? Because I, I was reading a letter in the Irish Times there recently uh, and the writer whose name I, I can't remember was making the point that really what people were looking for or seemed to be voting for were things that are unremarkable in most social democracies in Europe like a decent healthcare system a public healthcare system like housing it was pointed out for example that 60% of people in, in Vienna live in public housing you know and these you know these wouldn't all be people at the bottom of the pile so in that sense you know can we put a question mark over the, the radicalism of this vote, we, we you can discuss the ins and outs of of how radical, you know, the actual policies are, but in terms of Irish political life since independence, you know, the, the party, the party political, the party configuration, political yeah. configuration has well, been has been, has been changed. I mean, what you're also dealing with, of course, is the fact that for the last forty years, the dominant view in the Western world has been that there's no alternative to market economics and so on. So we're, we're, we expect very little. So Sinn Féin's economic manifesto isn't far to the left of what a mainstream social democratic party would have wanted 40 years ago. Nor was Corbyn's in Britain, by the way. It wasn't very far to the left of what Jim Callaghan might have wanted in the 1970s. But Corbyn is presented as this raving Marxist because we've had 40 years of neoliberalism and Thatcherism and so on. So relatively mild social democracy seems quite radical now. Okay, let's let's get away from the, the contemporary situation here and um, 
talk about what it says in the tin of this operation, which is history. Uh, this isn't the first Sinn Féin surge, you know, over the last century or so. So, you know, uh, 1918, obviously, the 1918 election. I mean, how relevant is that to our discussion? You know, the fact that all parties, bar some of the independents and the radical left, are all genetically Sinn Féin in one form or another. Yeah, I mean, the, the original Sinn Féin surge in 1918 reflected, in many ways, a coalition of interests, all united around the idea of self-determination and the slogan of a republic. And... That, in many ways, was inevitably going to crumble when it was presented with a, a major compromise. And, and the Cumann Gael tradition or the Fine Gael tradition largely comes from those who wanted to accept the compromise. Not entirely, but, but largely. The Fianna Fáil tradition, of course, comes from those who initially opposed the treaty. And Sinn Féin itself comes from those who refused to accept compromises, um, even though it has some distinct roots in its own way. So, in many ways, yes, the entire political system of, of independent Ireland has its roots in a republican revolution. And that's perhaps why this stuff matters a lot. You know, why yeah. why these slogans and so on do tend to to both motivate people and also perplex them and why there's a great deal of worry. I mean, another reason why there is a great deal of worry is that Sinn Féin's policies may not be in many ways very dramatic, but the party that's proposing them to a great chunk of the Irish establishment and, and the mm. common commentators and so on does seem very radical and very dangerous and that has its roots in our, in our history. So is it a happy coincidence or an unhappy coincidence that all this is happening right in the middle of the, the ongoing decade of centenaries? Well I think it, it's, it's largely a coincidence because I think as I say this has global as well as local roots in terms of the, the economic crisis and how it was dealt with. But it certainly, again, I think it gives an edge to things. I mean, there's no doubt that the RIC controversy did put a spring into the step of people who were campaigning against the government. There's no doubt that people's minds have been, to an extent, reflecting back on the struggle for independence. Again, the fact that Brexit has occurred in the midst of all this has you know, given people a taste of what what British nationalism has been about, whereas you know, hundred years ago we were actually ruled by it in in mm, this part mm. of, part of Ireland in, in in southern Ireland and so on. So I think those things have certainly given an edge to the debates. Well, let, let's let's go back to the the Fianna Fáil, right? Founded in nineteen twenty six, uh, famous described by who who was it described as you know a, a slightly constitutional party, Sean Lamas, uh, who later became mm. you know one of our most respected uh, Taoiseach. Um, are there echoes of that and, and the, the recent controversy about who or what uh, controls Sinn Féin? Well, there are echoes of it because certainly for the first you know, decade of its existence, there is a very more than ambiguous relationship between Sinn Féin, or between Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil and, and the, the IRA. Um, in the case of Lamas, Lamas unsuccessfully stands for the IRA executive in 1925. Um, as recently as that, I mean, yeah, you know. um, but I mean, the IRA's chief of staff, Frank Aiken, um, stands down in 1925, and in 1926 becomes a very prominent member of Fianna Fáil. But there was a separation there in that the IRA opposed the formation of Fianna Fáil, and the senior figures within the IRA who supported De Valera ultimately by 1927 are all out of the IRA. In fact, they they stand for election. 23 IRA officers stand for election in 1927 for Fianna Fáil and as a result they're court-martialed and expelled from the IRA. A lot of them win seats as as it happens. But at a local level there is much greater crossover for a long time after that. 
and Fianna Fáil up till 1932 generally tended to denounce efforts to suppress the IRA to ridicule government attempts to paint this as part of some kind of of conspiracy to overthrow the state and so on and to remain relatively friendly with the organisation but they were independent of each other and the IRA's leadership were quite separate from from Fianna Fáil's leadership now the IRA supported Fianna Fáil in the first 1932-1933 elections where they they first come to power um, for its for its own reasons Just go back to to before we go on to 1932 though um just remind us of the, those two elections, wasn't there, in 1927? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, my, my leaving start memory of history um, from that, I recall, I think it was the second one, that it was not that dissimilar to the present situation yeah. in that Fianna Fáil might have formed the government, except I think was it uh, the, the famous TD Jinx, Jinx yeah. who was detained, mm-hmm. a few pints thrown into him or whatever. Yeah. I'm not sure what the story is. Just just explain exactly what happened there, right? Because the, the Coming Gale government got another five years out of it. Yeah. Well, Fianna Fáil was only founded in 1926. And it's founded initially on the basis that it won't take seats in Leinster House unless the Oath of Allegiance is removed. So it's a departure from the from Sinn Féin's purism, refusal to recognise the state in any shape or form. But at the same time, it's not set up on the basis that they're going to go into government straight away. But their hand is forced because they stand in the first election in 1927 and they win um, 44 seats, I think. So they do pretty well. But they're abstentionists. They're not going to go into Leinster House. Then... Kevin O'Higgins, the Minister for Justice, is assassinated by members of the IRA, not by the organisation itself. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it wasn't uh, it wasn't an official uh, operation. One of those men, Timothy Coughlin, is a member of Fianna Fáil, by the way. So a member of Fianna Fáil is involved in shooting dead the, mm. the Minister for Justice. Minister for Justice, right. Coming to Gale see this as the beginning of an offensive against the state. So they introduce again draconian public safety legislation. They also quite cleverly then bring in electoral reform, which essentially makes it difficult for you to stand unless you're going to take your seat. So Fianna Fáil are faced with either that's, you know, standing back and saying we refuse to accept this or tactically we, we want to stand in the next election. And in the next election they do better. They nearly you know, win enough seats to, to come into power if they've got the support of others. Labour are prepared to back them. So they only need a couple of seats and that's why they go to the former home rulers, one of whom is John Jinx who doesn't turn up on the night. Now, retrospectively, some Fianna Fáilers argued that they just were not prepared for power in 1927. They were better off having a few yeah. years in opposition and reorganising that things would have been exceptionally unstable. I mean, this is very shortly after the Civil War. The Free State Army may have moved in 1927. Certainly elements within Cumann Gael wouldn't have been very willing to hand over power. By 1932, that has changed somewhat. But yeah, they do very well very quickly. And I suppose that's testament to De Valera and Lamas and Aiken and others who recognised that there was a basis for a party who opposed the free state, but were prepared to actually take part in day-to-day politics rather than simply denouncing it as a, as a British puppet. And aren't, are there, aren't there other parallels with the, with the present iteration of Sinn Féin, uh, they, them dropping their abstentionism in 1986? Like they've they've already they've already cleared that hurdle, if you like. Yes, they have. Although, again, I suppose the if you look at the 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 time scale involved, Fianna Fáil, De Valera, and Fianna Fáil did things rapid, you know, remarkably quickly. I mean, the the anti-treaty Sinn Fein, of which the current incarnation are are, are descended, took until nineteen eighty six, as you say, to to formally accept that they would take seats if elected to Leinster House. Um, and then took even longer to say they would take seats in some form of Northern Assembly. So that's a much longer drawn out process. But ultimately in 1997, 
Quivino Quaylon was elected and, and took his seat and, and so on. But these questions do have real roots in, in the Ireland of the 1920s and 30s. Now, let's, let's go back to Fianna Fáil in the 1930s, right? Because, again, can we draw parallels with, with the present uh, Sinn Féin, for example, on their policies, you know, housing policies, for yeah. example? I mean, how yeah. radical were their housing policies? Well, I think they, there are parallels. Firstly, Fianna Fáil's social and economic programme, I think, is the real reason for their success in forming a majority government by 1933. I don't think it's the case that uh, people decide... I was wrong about the treaty 10 years ago and now I'm going to vote for the anti-treatyites. There's an element to that, of course. But Fianna Fáil sweep up what had been a Labour vote. They sweep up some of the old home rule vote, even in the towns, and they get lots of new voters. So they're both presenting this Republican alternative, but at the same time, they're very much talking about the economic crisis. The Great Depression after 1929, immigration stops, people can't leave Ireland. Dublin has 78... 8,000 people living in homes unfit for inhabitation, apparently. When the Cumann Gale government attempt a big security, red scare and security clampdown in, in late 1931, that's really aimed at Fianna Fáil. I mean, the IRA are the ones being um, jailed, but it's in the hope that Fianna Fáil will be branded as communists. And what De Valera does is say, well, I'm not a communist, but communism will grow unless you handle deal with these grave social injustices. And in Dublin, you have people um, living in tenements and so on. We want to deal with that. And all this security stuff is a diversion from it. So Fianna Fáil argue that all the the rhetoric about the threat to democracy, the shadow of the gunman and so on, is just a diversion away from the fact that Cumann Gael have utterly failed to provide for the urban and rural poor and working population and that Fianna Fáil will do so. So there, of course, there are parallels there. And Fianna Fáil very effectively um, promise that they will change things uh, once they come to power. And by 1933, they've got a majority. They come to power initially with the support of Labour. Within a year, they win 77 seats um, and they are able to actually begin in a number of areas, including housing, to try and and alleviate some of, 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 of the dire need. What, what was the coming Gale record in that regard in the 20s? Generally very poor. I mean, coming to Gale were very much tied into the straitjacket of not going beyond um, remaining very much tied to big farmer interests, commercial interests tied to Britain. They do attempt some public housing projects. I think Marino, for example, mm. is regarded as you know, one very good one. Um, and, and in terms of, 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 you know, electrification and the Arna Crusher project, that stands the test of time as well. But generally they don't deviate from a, an orthodoxy, which they, they seem to take a grim pleasure in administrative, I mean, the, all those quotes, you know, that people may have to die and die of starvation, as I think uh, Paddy McGilligan says, you know, about the economic crisis in the mid 20s, they famously cutting, Ernest Bly cutting the pensions and so on. Balance in the books is very important, not going beyond the straight jacket of what's permissible economic. Sounds familiar. Yeah. So they're, <laughs> they're, they're, and particularly they, they do also do seem to have a lack of empathy with the fact that people are suffering. Um, and they're very much, Coming to Gael, continually reminding people that the state wouldn't exist without them, that they saved it, that they brought about this state of affairs, which begins to wear thin when by 1930, 1931, amidst of the Depression and people who want to immigrate can't even leave, um, that, you know, that you're happy to preside over this, that you, you'll take it and you'll like it, which again, you find echoes of often in, in Fine Gael governments, I think, this sense that the state owes them and therefore people should be happy that they're 
they're there. Come and Gael certainly have that in them. And also a contempt for their opposition. Again, I, I, there's echoes of this in, in, in Paddy Hogan said he wasn't worried about Fianna Fáil because you needed breeding to govern. You know, right. they were, these their opponents are not rated as highly as as Cumann Gael obviously taught themselves in the yes, present discussion are, as well. So. You know, yeah, yeah. Certainly, yeah. yeah. Now, just moving things on a bit, because um, the next sort of surge, if you want to call it that, well, a mini surge w- would have been in 1948 with the arrival of Clan the Pobdata. Just tell us a bit about that particular party. Well, again, you, I suppose you go back and, and say that the relationship between Fianna Fáil and the IRA ruptured fatally by 1936. The IRA were banned. At the time, leading IRA figures included people like Sean McBride, Michael Fitzpatrick and so on, who, who drift out of the organisation by the late 30s and it embarks on a kind of um, disastrous bombing campaign in Britain and it's suppressed north and south during the war years and there is an element of rethinking then among Republicans both inside and outside the IRA so in the post-war years a new Republican party is formed which in many ways resembles Fianna Fáil in its early years um, is not particularly left-wing I suppose people retrospectively kind of believe it was left-wing but it was more Republican but populist, um, wanting to, look, looking at Fianna Fáil have been in power for a long time now. There's still all these social problems. We need to deal with them. At the same time, we can't be in the straitjacket of Republican purism. People quite obviously accept the free state as it is. So there's no question of abstentionism. So you've got ex-IRA people in it, but you also have people from Labour backgrounds like Pather Cowan and young idealists like Noel Brown joined Clan Republica as well. Well, as in, I mean, Brown's, um, his profile I think maybe has that's what skewed the view of mm-hmm. the public um, and led people to assume that they're radical I mean if you, if you look at the uh, Sean McBride for example very conservative Catholic yeah. I mean I, I'm thinking like they were the end to of well, 1940s Yeah I mean I think again McBride's later career also makes maybe people think that he was perhaps more radical in the 40s than he was but again there is a Catholic social teaching radicalism that does infuse this mm-hmm. desire for social justice so they're certainly not socialists yeah, I mean they, yeah. they, they, there's a, a deep fear of communism by the 1940s in Ireland and Clan the Public the, of course are smeared with that label by Fianna Fáil now I mean it's, it's said about the Red Scares they must have been some use because not only Fianna Fáil were the victims of it in 1932, but they themselves revived it in 1948. And, and again, Fianna Fáil did? Yes, to, right. to, to, to target Clan the Public. Clan would have been very clear, we're not communists, we're mainly, in fact, loyal Catholics, but there are dire social problems which we want to tackle. Um, we will take seats, we'll tackle partition, but we'll do it from being in government in Dublin. And in the 1948 election, I suppose you've, You've got five former IRA chiefs of staff standing for election. One in Richard Mulcahy in Fine Gael, Frank Aiken in Fianna Fáil, and three in Clan the Public, Sean McBride, Mick Fitzpatrick and Sean McCool. So Clan does take a lot of the ex-IRA apparatus with it as well. Mm. Of course, Sinn Féin and the IRA still remain on the sidelines denouncing all this. Now, Clan win 10 seats, which is not a bad mm-hmm. uh, result for a first time out. Now, that was regarded as a big disappointment. I mean, what went wrong for them? They made the mistake, the opposite mistake to maybe Sinn Féin in this election in that clan ran too many candidates. They actually ran enough to form a government without really having the basis to do that. So in some Dublin constituencies, they ran three candidates and they managed in some cases to get one TD elected, but there was never a basis for three. In other places, their vote was split. So they mm. thought they were going to do far better. And I think... The, the thinking is that Fianna Fáil pulled the fast one by calling the election when they did, 
when Clan hadn't really got off the ground. Fianna Fáil knew they would do quite well. They'd won a couple of by-elections, so they wanted to head them off. So they didn't do as well as they thought they would. Party loyalties would have been, would have been much stronger then. Am I right in that assumption? Yes, and also... There's, le- that, there's less of a floating vote back then that, compared to now. Yes, and also, but Clan do appeal very much to young first-time voters as well, to the, the people who are just over 21 and so on. They use innovative cinema adver- uh, adverts, for example. They make a film, Our Country, which is shown in cinemas throughout, the, throughout the, the state. And they try to appeal a lot to the idea that the young, vo- the young deserve something better. That these they're already talking about, you know, these two parties are are still divided by the but civil that, that, war. That's that's an old refrain. I mean, yeah. that's another uh, thing that comes up in the recent election. The the the, the sort of this uh, generational thing. Yeah, you know that that uh, that, that you know, the voice of the youth and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, there's an argument really that it's maybe overstated now in the last election that actually, for example, Sinn Fein's vote came across all age groups, not just the young. But in 1948, I suppose what's interesting is that Clan the Public are already talking about overcoming the civil war division. I mean, they're, they're a Republican party and many of them have been in the IRA. But during the election, they make a big deal about the fact that you can be from a pro-treaty background and, and join us. It's not, we're not simply a continuation of the anti-treatyites. And they do, obviously, that's, you know, an attempt to, to heal the civil war division, which, you know, quite dramatically occurs when they go into government with, with Fine Gael um, in, in that year. Now, just before, I, I want to move up to the 1960s, but I just wanted to, to, to your view on, you know, the fact that Fianna Fáil were a single party government for most of the time, you know, up to the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an amazing achievement when you look back on it compared to, you know, the, the situation now. I mean, I'm assuming they would have got, what, 40% of the vote and they managed to get near enough to overall majorities with that, that share of the vote? Yeah, I mean, I think 1937 was their highest share when they, I mean, took well, nearly almost 50%. And I think that's the, the highest share of, of them combined with Fine Gael as well. I yeah. mean, it was 85% or something like that. Yeah. yeah. But, they, but, they, but they managed to, I mean, it's a phenomenal achievement and it was based, one, on that throughout the 1930s, despite the economic war and hardship, they did deliver for the rural poor and for the urban poor. I mean, Fianna Fáil's housing record in the 1930s is hugely impressive. Um, and the, the idea, you know, that you often hear today that it couldn't be done now, I mean, is, is ridiculous when you think it, it was possible to do it in the 1930s. I mean, people often compare Northern Ireland with the free state and, and they assume Northern Ireland was miles ahead in terms of social um, provision. The free state was well ahead in terms of housing and the quality of housing in the 1930s is really Northern Ireland's reputation in many ways comes from the post-war era and the Labour government after 1945. I mean, in the 1930s, there are real achievements and it solidifies, you know, this rural, small farmer, labourer, small business people, urban workers, um, the mass and others on very good terms with the trade unions, the idea that you, this can be done without confrontation, that there can be cooperation, which wheels this, you know, machine, which can include lots of different aspects. And that has a long life then. You know, it really yeah. doesn't begin to unravel think, until the, the we, 70s and 80s. And we should remind uh, listeners that that Ireland had a very high level of trade union membership, mm-hmm. yet it had a relatively weak Labour Party, which yes. always seemed like a, an aberration until you've factored in Fianna Fáil. Yeah. Like the Fianna Fáil are the Labour Party in Dublin, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
There's a story when Barry Desmond of the Labour Party went to work in Liberty Hall in the late 50s and, and talked about canvassing for the Labour Party and someone took him aside and said, you'll find that a lot of the officials here and our, our members will be out supporting Fianna Fáil. Um, the fact is that the trade union movement was very powerful and in fact, and often very militant. The 1960s, the Republic of Ireland has the highest stri- strike rate in Western Europe. But that doesn't translate at all into support yeah. for left-wing parties. And until the late 60s, most of the big trade unions weren't affiliated to the Labour Party anyway. Now, Brian, I want to move on to the um, the 1960s, right? And and your other uh, notable publication, of course, is your history of the, the, the Workers' Party. Just remind me of the, the title. The Lost Revolution. Lost Re- along with, uh, with Scott, Scott, Miller. Scott Miller, right? About 10 years ago. Um, which I think is, is still the, the leading work on on the the Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, the officials. Now, this is something that hasn't come into discussion at all, which surprises me in some ways, uh, because could this recent electoral success of Sinn Féin be seen as a vindication of the policy embarked upon by the officials back in the 1960s? Discuss. Yeah, I mean, the idea that really if you want to get political gains in Southern Ireland in particular, you've got to be prepared to, to enter Leinster House and to recognise that people do accept it as some form of 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 legitimate parliament. Yeah, I mean, I think they probably had loftier ambitions in some ways, obviously, by the 1970s anyway. But what seemed to the Republicans of the 1960s to still be a very heretical idea was that you recognise these partition parliaments. And of course, I suppose it's, it's sometimes forgotten. I mean, the provisionals, if you want to call them that, ultimately agreed to take seats in Leinster House. But in 1969, the Republican movement was proposing to take seats in Leinster House and in Stormont, and I think possibly in Westminster as well, which again, tactically, I think when you look back on it, it was a really, you know, stupid move because whatever about Leinster House, <laughs> the other two, were beyond the pale, certainly for a lot of Republicans. So, I mean, now it seems like a pretty practical idea. You know, you stand for election and obviously people expect you to do something with that election if you win it. Um, hard to imagine how controversial it seemed, but it came wrapped up with a whole load of other ideas which made it even more controversial, which was about the move to the left, what was perceived as Marxism. I put that in inverted commas, by the way, because I don't think they... They were Marxists until the 1970s anyway. Certainly mm. most of them in the late 60s were pretty conventional left Republicans. But but people perceived it as red, reds under the bed and so on. So it came with all these other things and then became intermeshed with the explosion in the North, which meant that it wasn't ever going to be an easy course to to, to push this through. Um, now, the thing is that, that going, just going back to the, I mean, they're not called officials yet, but that tendency within the, 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 the Republican movement, uh, Carl Goulding, etc., I mean, I mean, and again, this is from your book that it wasn't there wasn't a clear cut division between you know armed activity and political activity. I mean, I can I can remember one quote. I can't remember who it was from. You know, a, a happy mixture of mm-hmm. you know armed activity it was and Liam, elected. Liam Macmillan, I think. What, what was the exact quote there, Brian? It was Liam Macmillan, the Belfast IRA commander, said, you know, we 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 endorsed a, a happy mixture of political and military activity, and it's a bit, idea, again a bit a bit of echo echo and uh, Lamas's. Yeah. Slightly constitutional uh, remark back the, in the The idea 20s. was that the the IRA would continue to exist and actually in theory continue to exist to resin, resist British rule, but also that it would be, as it had been for a period in the early 30s as well, active in strikes and land agitation and housing agitation. And one of the big issues in Dublin was housing. 
the Dublin Housing Again, Action plus Committee. Plus change. Yeah. Yeah. Dublin Housing Action Committee uh, involves Republicans in agitation and protests. And along with squatting and marches and public protests, landlords' property is firebombed and their cars are burnt and so on. And this is the idea that the, the IRA is the army of the people as well as, you know, the traditional um, army of, of the Republic. So there wasn't that contradiction yet, um, which of course means, of course, then the state is also going to view you very differently. Um, by 1969, the the southern state is is talking again about Fianna Fáil, talking about, you know, the dangers of communism and, and Reds and so on. And again, there's a global aspect to that too. Yeah, just just continue on the, on the, the Workers' Party because they had their surge, you know, in 1989 mm-hmm. and uh, what, 10 or 12 TDs elected? Oh, only seven. Oh, seven, sorry. Well, there you go, you see, the memory yeah. is faulty, you know. Seven were like, but that was regarded as a surge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and many would say a pretty paltry return for the other decades of yeah. hard work. Yeah. And then, of course, it disappears like snow on a rope, mainly, I think, because they hitched their wagon to the Soviet Union, which is, is about to collapse. Yeah, I mean, they, again, in at the time, and, and I remember it, this seems like a big, I mean, big breakthrough. When you retrospectively think it's it's seven TDs, six of them in Dublin, just one outside, does not really have the national structure either that Sinn Féin have, for example, so they're not going to make the breakthroughs in the Sligo Leitrims and, and the other constituencies. Um, Labour, which had been very weakened by coalition by 1987, you know, did very badly in 1987, but came back in 1989, got about 16 TDs. So the Workers' Party, which had kind of hoped it was going to fill that ground mm. doesn't. But they still do. You know, people like Pat Rabbit, Eamon Gilmore were elected for the first time, become national personalities. But yeah, I mean, given that there was 20 years almost of attempting to build this from the ground up, in retrospect, it looks like, um, you know, pretty small scale returns mm. and not really in a position to affect the national question because the Labour Party, again, and Workers' Party together and anybody else wouldn't have been able to challenge Fianna Fáil or, or Fine Gael in, in, in terms of, of power. Um, so significant in, in how it showed, though, I mean, I think, and, and people like Danny Morrison and others, I think, would admit that in the 80s, the Northern Sinn Féin leadership were watching how the Workers' Party had managed to build a base, particularly in Dublin. And we're looking at how this was done and how in some areas it was after years of, I mean, Francis de Rossa topped the poll in his constituency in 1989. He'd started running there in the late 70s, I think, and they mm. built up a base in that area of Finglas, mm. you know, so got a big vote there. Um, they also won a seat in, in the European elections in Dublin and did very well. So certainly, you know, from the point of view of a small party that had been on the margins, very good result. But in terms of affecting the national, you know, uh, political kind of scene, still relatively limited. But I mean, at, I remember in 1989, though, all the talk was of this kind of left-wing surge because it, there was also collapse of the, 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 the PDs. Mm-hmm. Their their vote collapsed at the time. Well, collapsed, I mean, there were a very sp- small number of uh, TDs in any case, you know. I mean, it's just a reminder that we, we shouldn't lose the run of ourselves. <laughs> like, no, but the I trends, this, yeah. you know, that you might get these these trends of uh, uh, small swings, you know. Yeah. Um, you do, but I think this one is is different, even in terms of the, of the numbers. You know, I mean, the yeah. fact that the, the three parties are on much of a muchness yeah. on the doll, and and that you know Mary Lou Macdonald can put herself forward seriously as a potential Taoiseach, that is, I think, a, a, a new development. All right. Now, what do you think of the view then? You mentioned uh, Danny Morrison, Danny Morrison, Jerry Adams, all these people. 
were actually officials all along. You know that that, in other words, that if it hadn't been for the 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 armed conflict breaking out in the north, that they they would have they would have followed the the official line, the parliamentary line. Yeah, I think it's more complicated than that, obviously, um, and it's too too loaded a discussion in many ways because of the split and because of the the violence that follows the split for anybody to kind of stand back rationally. I mean, I think the. Certainly, Jerry Adams was very involved in the 60s in Belfast in the housing campaigns and all the the campaigns which are associated with the new turn. And people were, I think people like Liam Macmillan and others were quite surprised that Adams took the provisional side uh, when he did. But, you know, there's, there's differences in the evolution of those organisations in the 1970s which don't make for me the way that people talk about mm-hmm. the provisionals are just sticks 20 years on and stuff. Um, um, to be you know, um, really relevant labels. Just, just for some of our younger listeners, Brian, let's explain that term "sticks." By the late nineteen sixties, for commercial reasons, actually, the Republican movement had decided to get its Easter lilies printed, um, on, on adhesive labels rather than with the pin, rather than with paper on on pin. And when the split occurred in 1969-1970, the first Easter, the provisional was reverted to the pin, and the officials. Stuck with the adhesive. <laughs> right. Sorry, and and this began to take on meaning in people's minds. Then so pinheads the, and stickies, pinheads and stickies, and the pinheads label didn't didn't attach itself to the oh god to the provisionals, but stickies that, that, did. That, that has morphed in Belfast into yeah. Chucky heads uh, about twenty years ago, yeah. my memory. But the 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 stickies became associated with the adhesive. Really, right. and and still to the present day, that for a lot of people, that's that can define their their allegiance. But that's where the uh, the, the nickname comes from. And and is used in all kinds of situations now to explain all kinds of politics. But now let, let's 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 talk a little bit about the, the current situation. Um, you have a power sharing uh, government in, in Northern Ireland after that that hiatus over the last number of years. If you were a unionist, uh, you know, your and your your representatives, DUP is the main one, um, have to share power with Sinn Fein. How do you think they think? What what do they what do they think of the attitude of the leaders of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael saying they won't share power with Sinn Féin in this jurisdiction? I mean, I think they'd be pretty, in some ways, bewildered by it, maybe angered by it. I mean, I think it probably reinforces for them the idea that the South wants to have its cake and eat it and that there's completely mm. different rules and regulations for them. I mean, Arlene Foster, whatever people might think of her, her father was actually shot by the IRA. Yeah. And she's sharing power with Sinn Féin. Yeah. So the idea that Sinn Féin are unfit for government in Dublin because of their historic ties to the IRA. But yet, people who actually physically suffered from the IRA's campaign can have to share power with them. And if they don't share power with them, they're bigots. You know, right. so I think it's, it's, it is bewildering and it does raise this whole question of, again, you know, the idea that, oh, well, we can't put Sinn Féin in government here because the IRA Army Council still exists and it's directing them. Well, why are the DUP in government with them then? Are the DUP aware of this? So going back to the officials, for example, uh, was the the army council of the officials in control of the movement? It was the up political to a certain, way. It was up to a certain point. Um, Does it still exist? Uh, the official IRA, mm. as far as I'm aware, it still exists. Yeah, mm. although it's been called Group B for a long okay. time. Um, and I suppose there's a different trajectory too, because when the officials declared a a, a conditional ceasefire um, in 1972, and and that ultimately. The violence didn't stop, but ultimately it became a full ceasefire. They decided what 
they thought they were being clever, but I'm not sure it was that clever, hmm. that rather than disband, um, they would maintain the organisation, but just never talk about it and pretend hmm. it didn't exist and refer to it as Group B and, you know, try to put distance between it and the political organisation. So essentially, if you were going to be a political activist and certainly a, a public political activist, you wouldn't be involved in Group B operations but some people involved in the political side would still be members. But the problem was, of course, that the people who were centred around the official IRA um, and who thought they were in control of all aspects of the movement, because the movement was busily denouncing all this mm. and denouncing all political violence as essentially fascist, it meant, of course, that people joined on that basis too and that lots of ordinary activists joined who actually believed there wasn't an mm. official IRA. So while it didn't come to a shock, certainly, to a lot of the political personalities, there were people genuinely amazed by the late 80s when there's more and more revelations about illegal yeah. fundraising and so on. And there was also a kind of contemptuous sense on behalf of some of the Group B people that, well, these TDs and so on and councillors are kind of useful idiots and they'll do what we tell them. Well, you know, people have ambitions themselves and ideas. Well, this, this yeah. comes from my next point, right? Because... Uh, from the point of view of you know hardcore revolutionaries, the, the, the people like the you know uh, Goulding or whatever, right? Uh, the people who opposed the, the the emergence of democratic left. I mean, the point is, from their point of view, all these people, who their hard work they could argue, mm-hmm. had gotten elected, well paid salaries in in the doll, mm-hmm. and they all take this careerist route and eventually end up in the Labour Party. Now, if you're if you're somebody of a similar ilk in the the provisional movement. Uh, the fact that there may or may not be, that there might be an army council mm-hmm. directorate, you might think, well, you know, that's a good thing because the, the precedent has been set that if you don't have somebody with oversight, they're all going to take the careerist road. I mean, it, because it's interesting, for example, that the um, the PSNI assessment uh, of the existence or otherwise of an IRA army council, very interesting to look at the wording of it. It says this is based on the views of Republican activists themselves that they believe that there is an army council. Mm. So it's almost like if there isn't, they wish there was one Mm. in existence to keep to keep all these potential careerists on track. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a theory, of course, that, you know, that you should only have reliable people put into these positions who will obey the discipline of the movement and won't go off message and so on. And you can argue, I mean, I'd have some sympathy with the position of of the people who remained in the Workers' Party in terms of class and in terms of how they mm. they viewed the trajectory of of what became democratic left, but a lot of ordinary activists in the Workers' Party were going out working hard in elections who never saw the official IRA and and didn't you know mm. weren't told that there was a greater plan that they weren't privy to and they were genuinely they felt used by this and they felt you know that well this isn't you know if 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 this is the plan why aren't we in on it? You know, yeah, people yeah. Who, who didn't know that actually there's people going for training in North Korea or, you know, that yeah. we're asking the Russians for, for half a million pounds or whatever, you know. So I think that that movements which emerge from the kind of IRB history or the military structure do suffer from this because people do expect there has to be a certain level of discipline and people have to be on message. At the same time, people also expect a bit of leeway in terms of what mm, they're mm. given to the the organisation. Um, in a very small way, you could say that Sinn Féin now have elected a lot of new first-time TDs. Yeah. And as their Twitter, Twitter feeds are revealing, they may not have all 
been to the right education classes or learned what the party line is on certain mm. matters. And that is the price of success. Because yeah. you suddenly yeah. have lots of people supporting you who haven't read the history books and they don't actually, you know, they know you're a good party, you stand for what they stand for um, and would probably be, you know, maybe a bit surprised if, if, if it did transpire there was an army council, whether they agree with it or not. Now, Sinn Féin is, is unique in terms of a large political party, which is an all-Ireland party. But are they effectively two different parties, North and South, in your opinion, in terms of their appeal? Yes, I think they are. And I think their Southern appeal is a little bit more fragile on that basis. Mm. Um, because in the North, they've effectively become the voice of the nationalist community. It's an identity yeah. thing. And right. even though there's fraying at the edges, and certainly in Derry, for example, the vote went back to the STLP to, mm. you know, mm. quite quite dramatically. But but in general, I mean, most young nationalists in the North and, and, and people I know there identify with Sinn Féin they see it as a party that will defend their interests and to a greater or lesser extent the, the social and economic policies and so on are things that they, they agree with as well but the national question is more important Right. Um, in the South their appeal now I wouldn't underestimate the national question and I think it's been revived you know by Brexit and other things as well but I think their appeal has been a left social democratic appeal mm. essentially mm. and it's not necessarily grounded in, in the belief that this is going to bring about the Republic and therefore a person might change their mind at the next election. I mean, one poll said that 16% of Sinn Féin voters had voted for Fine Gael the last time, which again, in theory, shouldn't be able to happen. But of course it can mm. in real life, you know. Yeah. You change your mind or you're, you're uh, identifying with that project. But they also benefit, though, from partition to the extent that no matter what they do in government in the North, and they would argue they're constrained by British policy and so on, but... You know, people say, but you've done this in the North and it completely contradicts what you say here. Most people in the South care so little about day-to-day politics in the North that nothing Sinn Féin do does there really affects their Southern perception, I think. And what has been their record in government in the North? extremely pragmatic. Um, They're, on the one hand, have attempted to introduce, you know, democratic reforms and, and pushed for for changes in, in, in terms of, of social and economic affairs to an extent, but have always, you know, tended to, one argue that they're, it's a special kind of power sharing agreement. They're constrained again by British budgetary policy, that there's the legacy of the peace process, which needs to be maintained. And this always hems them in on certain issues. So they'll be criticised over, um, you know, the left would argue implementing austerity, overseeing cutbacks and so on. They would say, we oppose these, but mm. again, until there's a United Ireland and there's an All-Ireland Parliament, we can't really do anything about this. We're still grappling with the effects of of, of partition. And they have a point, of course, in that Northern Ireland doesn't really, remain part of the United Kingdom. They haven't really frightened the horses. No, they haven't. And there's been, you know, again, occasionally what's, I suppose, different about Sinn Féin is that they have managed to maintain support in the United States among people who would not be even vaguely social democratic, let alone left wing, mm. um, maintain ideas like bringing corporation tax in the North down to the level of the South rather than raising corporation tax itself. I think they argue there needs to be that harmonisation before they can talk about other taxation and so on. So so again, the idea, I suppose, that the hysteria, which is real, and I've I've been talking to people who are 
genuinely fearful of all this talking about another Venezuela and so on if Sinn Féin come to power. I think that's so exaggerated and overblown that it doesn't, you know. I think Ibeck and so on have been quietly far less hysterical about the prospect of of Sinn Féin in government. Now, one big difference between the present situation and these previous parallels that we drew is that we we have, you know, within living memory, there's 30 years of violence in the North, right? Um, In other words, like the, 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 the... so that the, the parallel, say, with the officials back in the 60s doesn't apply in that sense because although the IRA existed, it hadn't been involved in such a, a you know, vicious campaign, you know, which, which, mm-hmm. was, which is, well, it's, it's our present. Yes. <laughs> Maybe not, not, not for my kids who voted yeah. in this election, right? So how big a factor has that been in the election? And how big a factor will it be, do you think, in the, over the next few years? I certainly think for a section of the electorate, not only... Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil voters, their aversion to Sinn Féin is still based on mm. the memory of the Northern conflict. Um, and again, Northern Republicans can argue, well, we weren't the only people doing these things. But certainly in the South, the perception always was that the IRA were the, the main actors and that the IRA had designs on overthrowing the South or that they did things here. And all that matters in a way for an older generation that it probably doesn't I mean the recession is a far sharper memory for the under 30s well, that's, that's, that's than, what I'm thinking right than, than yeah. the armed conflict and again I think people are aware of this double standard that the media during election yeah. times will seize on well, it's, something it's continuing. I mean yeah. it's I, I stepped up actually yeah. since the election yeah. seems to me I mean the description of these uh, Sinn Féin meetings and rallies as yeah. intimidation Utter, for, utterly for crazy sake, you know, I mean, I mean yeah. madness yeah. I mean public meetings in hotels are yeah. carried out by every political party in the country and I think whoever is being paid very well to advise Leo Varadkar should be should mm. be sacked because this was just crazy talking about bullying and intimidation it's not bullying and intimidation to organise a public meeting. It's part of democracy. And, and if you don't like yeah. Sinn Féin, go along and ask them questions. But yeah. the point is that IRA activities in the past are raised during election campaigns quite cynically. Um, I think some Sinn Féin voters can obviously perceive that they don't see anything of the equivalent focus put on loyalist atrocities or on the role of the British state in the conflict and therefore they see it as hypocritical. And they also then will argue that, well, don't Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have a military history somewhere? You know, yeah. I see it raised all the time that, you know, Fine Gael in the 1930s were founded by fascists for a while. Well, Sean, Sean McCone, when he stood for yeah. president in 1959, famously exactly. put a front and centre of his uh, manifesto. Exactly, you know? and, and the Michael Collins... Soldier and patriot, um, that was yeah. it, yeah. The Michael Collins faction of the party professed great pride in a man who organised a very ruthless guerrilla campaign in mm. Dublin and elsewhere. And Fianna Fáil, of course, come from the anti-treaty tradition, arguably uh, opposed the democratic will of the people in 1922 when a majority voted to accept the treaty. Yeah. You know? Frank Aiken, who was our Minister of External Affairs up to the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, even responsible more, I mean, for the Alton Fay massacre, apparently. Micheál Martin has spoken at the Liam Lynch commemoration and Liam yeah. Lynch led a guerrilla war against the new Irish state. So there's all those kind of questions. Now you can argue that there that's history no. and the provisional IRA is much closer and that there's deep scars within Northern Ireland. But the idea, of course, again, and sometimes people will argue, well, a vote for Sinn Féin in the South just shows unionists that deep down all along people were supporters of the IRA and it puts off mm. unity. Again, I don't think that washes in terms of one, the DUP and so on are flexible enough to understand that 
politics is politics and whatever people might say rhetorically they know it's more complicated than that and I think that there does need to be a full and frank discussion about the northern conflict and what happened during it and what all sides were up to but to use it as a political football devalues it it certainly doesn't show any respect for anybody I think and it's it's quite cynical and I don't think it works Well it's, the other thing is going back to the, my opening remarks about the, the decorative centenaries um, is that it threatens to unravel that whole project I mean if they keep banging this particular drum I mean the logic of it is that, that this date isn't legitimate at all because uh, you know where did the men of 19, men and women of 1916 get their mandate you know we, we've had this discussion several yeah. years ago you know exactly um, I mean and, and in a way maybe we, we should be thankful that compared to other conflicts in other parts of the world right the trend, the tendency here seems to be for fairly low levels of violence, relatively, and I say that very advisedly, that, that there's always this, that like a magnet, there's always this pull back into uh, parliamentary politics. It seems to affect every generation, no matter how revolutionary they were at some stage. Now, whether you, you, you're critical of that, if you're, if you're of a radical frame of mind, but I would suspect most people would be, would be thankful for it. Do you know what I mean? That there seems to be a default position that everything gets dragged into the, the political arena uh, eventually. And that's just part of our of our culture, our political culture. Yeah, I mean, I think to an extent, certainly in terms of the Republican tradition, there ultimately does always seem to come to a point where people are faced with the choice of if we want to really achieve power, that we've got to, you know, enter... The phrase, the, the, the phrase responsible government, which is a very conservative yeah. phrase, right? But it seems that the Irish people have a huge attraction to it well, I think at the that, end of the day, I think the majority of people certainly in Southern Ireland fairly rapidly accepted the state that emerged from independence, and most of them were happy with independence. And I think, therefore, that the idea that you, you know, that in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, the the purest Sinn Fein tradition, which argued that essentially nearly buying a dog license was betrayal of the republic, that was never going to wash. That both the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael traditions and add Labour to that and so on were happy to be independent. Now, the North was a different matter because mm. of the way the state was, was structured there. And therefore, to have the ambitions to wield power meant you were going to have to recognise that to some extent. And I think, you know, in the 1980s, people who were leading the Republican movement in the North recognised to make gains in, in, in the South, they would have to enter the, the mainstream political process. And I think that probably did have an effect on on the armed struggle as well and on their realisation that the South wasn't going to buy a lot of what went on in the North. Um, but I think there's also the, you know, the, the, the case that we're still not at the end of this story. Um, mm. That the, what's happened in the last election still has produced three contenders who come from relatively similar origins, mm. whether some of them are fairly far back. Um, and that, there's relatively little appetite for completely jettisoning that entire process. Do you think then, Brian, that there, there's a certain, I'm choosing my words very carefully here, that you talk, you talk about people you want, wanting their cake and eating it earlier. Is there not an element of that amongst a huge section of the electorate? In other words, they, they, they might vote for Sinn Féin for fairly conservative reasons, in a sense, just reasonable social democratic reasons. But then, you know, a few bars of come out you back in hand, you know, doesn't doesn't do them any harm at all uh, because it, give them that, it gives them that whiff of sulphur, which 
is attractive to some people. Yeah, I mean, of course it is attractive to some people because it has a basis in history again, you know, and it has... I mean, I, I thought um, of an interesting example that, you know, with David Cullinan, right, who, who apparently, you know, this big gaff driving mm. up the round and so on at this meeting. Literally half an hour later, he's on TV3's chat show. I mean, I, I thought that was strange, like, that if, if, if this was seen as such a gaff by his own people, why'd they put him up front to go out and, 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 and speak to the nation, you know, on, on a panel discussion? Yeah, I don't think it was necessarily seen as a big gaff by his yeah. own people. I mean, yeah. I think that the that Sinn Féin supporters will be chanting up the Ra for a long time to mm. come yet. And I think also that, of course, their their particular evolution is very much about that history. So, I'd, I'd, you know, it wouldn't have bothered me in the slightest what he shouted, essentially, when he was celebrating. But I think that while that's an element of their attraction to some people, you know, the idea that, I mean, this is, they are a party who are continually denounced by the establishment and therefore if you're rebellious, hmm. I think they're a natural political home. And that's a good thing because I think, you know, there's there are worse rebellions against establishments that people can be involved in. Um, and we see that across the world at the moment in terms yeah. of the rise of right-wing populism yeah. and so on. Yeah. And Sinn Féin's policies on immigration and on and anti-racism and so on have been a bulwark. Against and and, that and their TD yeah. infamously was, was yeah, yeah. Ca- and far, more, for far more so than the mainstream parties yeah. who tag along to all these protests oh, who, it, it, who run with the hare and hunt with the hounds when it comes to these issues where, where Sinn Féin have been fairly held principled the on this and have yeah. held the line so I think again when they're criticised I think this is often yeah. forgotten um, but I, I mean I think that they're the up the ra stuff obviously it's hyped up by their opponents um, and again, sometimes cynically, but does then for, I think, for a certain section of, of the population is frightening because yeah. they associate the RA with the Northern conflict, not with the old IRA. And of course, it is a term that comes from the modern conflict, not from yeah. the 1920s, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And just just to finish off, Brian, I mean, you, you mentioned the international situation there because in some ways this election was depicted in the international media as another element of this right wing populism, you know, nationalist populism. I mean, a, a total misreading of the situation, it seems to me. Yeah, I think it was completely wrong. And, you know, it, if anything, it, it's, it shows that across the globe, the political system has ruptured because of the recession. But it doesn't necessarily have to fall in a right wing direction. And the vote for Sinn Féin, with all its complications and so on, I think was largely a left wing vote. Final question, Brian. Who's going to be the next Taoiseach? Tommy, I'm a historian, not a clairvoyant. That's such a disappointing answer, Brian. Listen, <laughs> thanks very much for having a chat with us, making some, giving us some historical background on, on the recent election. And listeners, uh, check out uh, future podcasts. If they're as good as this one, uh, we, we, we will definitely keep this going. Uh, this is Tommy Graham signing out. <laughs>